0: So why we head over to somewhere that you've probably never been before, it's called the show notes. So whatever app you're listening in, if it's Spotify or Apple podcasts or anything at all, head to the show notes, click on my special link, and then you can browse thousands of gigs ready to help you with your next project. And now let's dive into today's episode. Let's go. Welcome to another episode in season seven, 7 Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast. If you are listening to this or you are watching on YouTube, you will know by now we have passed 20,000 downloads. That actually puts us in the top 10% of podcasts worldwide. So thank you so, so much to everyone who's supported, every guest, every listener, every, sing, every single person, Lewis Wright, my wife, Adrienne Lopez, that's been involved, Leigh Wynn. Uh, we couldn't be here without you. So thank you so, so much. I'll get This is our second ever uh, online live podcast, our third live podcast. Now, my guest today, she is a food marketer, writer, and industry speaker. She has a decade of working, living, and eating across Europe, Asia, and the Middle East, and has managed more than 50 restaurants, which we're going to delve into deeper than someone <laughs> So clearly, Young has managed more than 50 restaurants. I don't think I've eaten in 50 restaurants, but she's managed more than 50. Get- Become a member of the 7 Million Bikes community, and you'll get free tickets to our events. Free 7 million bikes face masks, episodes a day early, behind the scenes content and invites to special events for community members. The link is in the show description, so check it out and join today. Thank you so much to our existing community members. We look forward to seeing you again soon. This season, we've gifted sponsorship of a Vietnam podcast to two amazing charities close to our hearts. The Blue Dragon Children's Foundation in the North and Saigon Children's Charity in the South. Please check out the links in the description to learn more about these amazing organizations and donate if you can. Enjoy the episode and thanks for listening. Welcome to 7 Million Bites, a Vietnam podcast, season seven. This is our second ever online live podcast, our third live podcast. Now, my guest today, she is a food marketer, writer, and industry speaker. She has a decade of working, living, and eating across Europe, Asia, and the Middle East, and has managed more than 50 restaurants, which we're going to delve into deeper. Huh? Someone... <laughs> So Clearly, Young has managed more than 50 restaurants. I don't think I've eaten in 50 restaurants, but she's managed more than 50. Not only that, in 10 different countries in head of marketing roles. Today, she's the founder of Vietnam's only dedicated food and beverage industry blog called jovochan.com and podcast. She's regularly featured in the media and speaks at industry conferences and workshops And she's only been in Saigon a relatively short time. She's from Singapore originally, and she has made a massive impact immediately on the food and beverage industry. So, if you don't know who it is already, my guest today is Joval Chan. Thank you for joining us, Joval.
1: Thank you for having me and a super solid introduction. I think you've introduced me better than I've ever spoken or introduced myself.
0: Well, you know, I'm a professional podcaster with more than seven seasons and 20,000 downloads. So, you know.
1: I'll be sure to know that if I ever talk to you one day and have to introduce you.
0: <laughs> uh, so this is the difference as well with a live podcast. It's going to be, um, as we were just talking before you came on before you came on the call, for Annie and Pippa they're at Zion, they're all members of the 7 Million Bites community, which means oh, they get access to, to special bonus content. And so I was editing the next episode, which will come out next week, and I had all this bonus content. that made me laugh so much that I sent it to them immediately. Um, so what will normally happen is uh, I, I honestly will normally cut out about the first 20 minutes of every podcast because <laughs> we talk so much nonsense and then cut out a whole bunch of other stuff to try and make it um, – an hour long which is still really long so i have to cut it down sometimes to two hours the best thing about the live podcast is we can't cut out all this nonsense and stuff like that so you guys get to listen to the unfiltered unedited nonsense that we get to talk about and we're having a beer so so who knows but so Joval, i've given you an introduction Mm to first question 50 restaurants yeah explain
1: I know. I feel like you, 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 you asked me this over messenger. You're like, there's no way you've done 50 restaurants. And I feel like, you know what, this is a, nobody has ever questioned this before right away. <laughs> but it's really good that you pointed it out. Um, so I spent a, a big amount of time in the Middle East and uh, my formative career years were there. And like I mentioned, I worked from one restaurant group to another restaurant group to another restaurant group, which went from three restaurants to eight restaurants to, at the peak of my career, I was, you know, head of marketing for a franchise group, which had, you know, nearly 28 restaurants in eight countries. So that, that really is the, the, the biggest chunk of the, the restaurants. <laughs> yes. So after that, it was you know, another restaurant group with 10 and then another restaurant group with six and slowly bit by bit, it was, it's about 50. Yeah.
0: Now, I I also said to you in the message, how old are you that you've managed 50 restaurants? Because you look about 22 and it's like, how have you managed? So you're one of these people as well that I kind of hate, but just these massively high achievers. Like, how have you, so give us more of your background. How have you obviously had a lot of success, worked with massive, massive international brands, um, yeah. managed 50 restaurants in 10 different countries. How did you get to that point? Uh, and like you said, you're a lady, so you're not going to share your age. But how have <laughs> I'm you... I'm not
1: 22. I'm not 22 for sure. I'm definitely not 22. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but how have you achieved that much at such a relatively young age?
1: Um, I think that when... You know, I, like I said, I think when I was in the Middle East, um, there were just it was just a land of opportunity. When I was in the Middle East, you know, um, that was at the peak of when hotels were just being built every single month. There was a new restaurant every single week. So we're constantly looking for people. And I just was able to really move and jump and jump and jump. Whereas in a place like Singapore, people typically stay in certain positions for like 10, 15 years, right? So I think that I was just in a very, I was just in a land of opportunities where, you know, um, coming from um, a hospitality background. And I think, you know, I did, a, I did a podcast with Connor over here. He knows that basically in the first five years of when I was in the Middle East, um, I went to night school like every single day. Not every single day, but I went to night school for almost like two or three years. So I was like working and studying constantly, doing like a ton of different courses, trying to make sure that I was constantly able to move up and move up and move up. Yeah. So I told myself that I was only going to leave the Middle East by a certain age when I was the head of marketing and earning a certain amount. So um, yeah, I think when I was a lot younger, I had a lot more energy to constantly just keep going, 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 going.
0: Yeah. I mean, I had lots of energy when I was young, <laughs> and I don't manage to get even 1% of that. So I, I am always I am very um, impressed when people like yourself can do things like that. It's interesting, though, and I'm not like putting down your achievements as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think anytime that you ask that, or anytime I hear that question asked them, anyone who's been successful in that industry from music to art or whatever it is, or, or food and beverage, the word you said there was like the right kind of timing, like opportunity. Mm, but Yeah, but that doesn't that doesn't take away from your achievement because one of the things that frustrates me is when someone says I'm lucky or whatnot. You weren't lucky. Yeah. You worked hard to be in the right position at the right time. Like if you hadn't like done the night school, if you hadn't done all the hard work that you'd done, when that opportunity came along, you wouldn't have been able to take it. So it's not, and I'm not so. But it's interesting though how you. You just need that right timing, right? At the same mm. time with the, with the effort.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think like I was just so committed to what I knew I wanted to achieve that there was just no way that I was not going to allow myself to not get there. And I just, you know, really saw like I'm constantly thinking, what do I need to do to get to where I want to be? And so just kept going and going. Um, when I first moved to the Middle East, um, I didn't make a lot of money. I was really just, you know, like just a beginner level, but I wanted to eat at really nice restaurants. And so I applied to be a food writer for this pretty famous, like not pretty famous, but this like food blogger in the Middle East. And I, I applied and I said, I want to write for you because I want to eat at nice restaurants.
0: That is yeah. That is genius. That yeah. Is genius. Yeah.
1: yeah, and that gave me a leg up and then to foot writing and holding my skill. And it's the same for I really like to uh, indoor cycle and I couldn't afford to indoor cycle. So I said, I want to be an instructor here.
0: <laughs> Hold on a minute. Hold on. Yeah. <laughs> I have never heard this sentence said before in my life. I like to indoor cycle.
1: Yeah, I like indoor cycling. I was really into indoor cycling and doing yoga, what? but I was so poor when I was twenty-one. But oh, like oh, yeah, but yeah, I love it. <laughs> doing yoga is fine.
0: Yeah, I love indoor cycling. I that's, love indoor cycling. Why do you have like a bike cycling as you get somewhere and you see something and like
1: what? Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Well, that's a new one. Did you ever go to the Salt Bay restaurant?
1: No, I never.
0: You didn't have oh, the no. gold tomahawk steak. What is that like twenty no, thousand?
1: No. Yeah, <laughs> it's ridiculous. I don't. I think that's just a uh, yeah gimmicky kind of a thing for a
0: drop. Even <laughs> here at the Hard Rock Cafe, they had a, a gold plated or gold coated <laughs> like a hamburger, which was like ridiculously expensive. Mm. And you know, we did comedy shows there, and sometimes when I said to the staff, I said, "Have you tried it?" And they were like, "Yeah, yeah, we have." And I was like, "Is it good?" And they're like. I mean, it's just, it's just the same. It doesn't really taste any different. It's just got some gold flakes on it. It's yeah, pretty- yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. There's a lot of uh, food gimmicks out there, and uh, I have my own thoughts about these things. But I just- <laughs> I don't personally like have any interest in paying like a thousand dollars for like a stick or anything. No.
0: <laughs> yeah. 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 It's crazy, isn't it? I'm um, so. Yeah. so- Tell, tell us a bit more, and what was that like living in the Middle East? Because we actually were very close to moving to Oman. Oh, yeah. uh, we were going we to leave Vietnam. Oh, yeah. we, we'd we already packed up our stuff. We'd, we'd given up our apartment. We'd sold a bunch of stuff, uh, and we were going to slowly oh. move to Oman. And then uh, I got offered a new job. Which I, well, sorry. I a new job became available that I applied for. I got the job, and then that, that led us to now still living here. So, um, had you, have you ever been to Oman or where were you? Yeah, Oman?
1: yeah, yeah. I, I, I went to my, I lived in Dubai and Abu Dhabi for about five years. Uh, yeah, and then I moved to Malaysia, and then I moved here. And living in the Middle East is great, right? Like it's adult Disneyland. That's a lot going on, So, concrete jungle, there's so much glitz and glamour, there's a lot of money, hospitality is great. Uh, Yeah, so it was really fun to be there. Um, But there's always a glass ceiling, I think, for a woman in the hospitality industry and especially in the Middle East. Um, So when I came to a point in my career, I kind of knew that I couldn't really break through um, certain things, not because I wasn't talented or hardworking, it just really boils down to um, race language and so I said oh, okay probably go back to Asia
0: yeah so break break that down for me a little bit more yeah how does that like eventuate like you're just you're just passed over for promotion or is it like things people say like how do you know that you've hit that glass ceiling
1: um I think that like generally the hospitality industry is quite patriarchal kind of um industry right it's largely male dominated um and that in itself is already quite hard to be let's say a a female in a management position or in decision-making position Um, and especially in the middle east where it the culture itself is quite patriarchal and then you slap on the fact that there's also you know the, the the islamic culture which is a little bit more that favors their own a little bit. Like, never quote me on this, but, you know, there there is definitely, like, you know, a a hierarchy, right? There's a hierarchy. So I think that when you're, like, when I was living there, it just felt as if, though, you know, um, I wasn't able to break through or get the kind of recognition or the kind of respect or to be taken seriously just for many of these factors um yeah and that's why i said uh, i think it would be a lot easier not that i was looking for something easy but it was just you know for what i wanted to do or the kind of impact that i wanted to make it it would be better in asia um and more valuable in asia yeah
0: so what has attracted you to the food and beverage industry that
1: I think from young, like I've always, I've been in the food and beverage industry since I was like 14. (laughs) I think everybody has kind of done a a side job in the food and beverage, like waiting tables or something like that. But I was so consistently like in the food and beverage industry. Uh, I love talking to people and I love, I think if anything, um, just how everything works together in a restaurant or in a hotel. So I always think of it like a game, right? Like if the food doesn't go out um, on time, then this gets impacted. It's like a, it's like a domino effect. And, and I, I like how everything works together. And when you get it right and the flow and everything just comes together, I think it's, it's one of the most uh, fulfilling uh, feeling, you know? So I, I really like how everything in the food and beverage industry or in the hospitality industry all kind of intertwines together and how much it deals with people.
0: Um, yeah, so it's quite, it's quite a high pressure industry, isn't it? Like it's, I I mean, even from the way you're describing it, it's like a sport
1: yeah it's like a video game it's like you got to do like this one thing and then rush somewhere you got to do something you to like do something and it's always like oh if I didn't do something you got to go back to square one so it's always I I like you know that you can really feel and see that progress like really happening right in front of your eyes that satisfaction like right in front of your eyes It's, it's cool and um no day is the same because the market's constantly changing but but at the same time, like everybody still eats three times a day. So it's, it's so exciting, right? Like, you know, when you think about it, <laughs> or maybe it's just me.
0: <laughs> no, actually, I mean, I've I worked in hospitality when I was younger yeah, in exactly. several countries. Uh, I've worked in, in New York. I've worked in Australia, yeah. um, only in Scotland a little bit. But um, yeah, I, I, I've got to, you've made me think of a funny story. Now this, this is going to kill you. Okay. You understand the pain of this, right? So I work in a very busy cafe, yeah, and uh, they all just come in thick and fast for the coffees, right? And then you know what it's like when people order coffee. I don't know if anyone who's listening has worked in a a cafe or a restaurant. You know, it's like a skinny milk, almond milk, half shot, double shot. (laughs) shot. You know, every and then all these permutations just for coffee. All yeah, can be any of these permutations. It's probably almost infinite how many different ways people can order coffee, right? Yeah. And so it's a crazy Sunday morning in this cafe, right? We're, we're stowed, we're packed out the door and there's a line, and it's crazy. And you're trying to like see which coffee's which and which ticket so you can deliver it to the right table and whatnot. And then this woman, she goes, oh, I've already got my coffee. I just picked it up off the counter. Oh no. I was <laughs> like, like that, that's not your coffee. You know, This like a <laughs> 50 coffees of gear right now and they're all different and they're all very specific. <laughs> that must be so frustrating. Yeah, it's crazy.
1: I think it's so crazy like how the, the the coffee industry is very interesting to me because nobody used to drink coffee in the way we drink coffee now.
0: Not at all. No, and
1: And if, if you even look at food, nobody eats the way how they used to eat. And I think that when you see the, the the evolution of food and how people are ordering or eating, it's you, you know we see that it's so much like a learned behavior, and you can see what's happening in the market and what's happening to people. So, like when people look at food, I never really look at food as like just food. I always see like, okay, what's happening in the market? It's making them eat this way, or. Or, or try to understand why they're eating this way. Um, yeah, and I think that's the part that's like so interesting.
0: So that, that's like a whole nother level. That's so interesting because so what yeah. I'm talking about, what I'm just my example of a story there is what happens to one server on one day on one instance, right? Mm-hmm. But again, you're one of these people that you're like looking at it like this, which is always, I always think of CEOs or anyone who's high in a company, And I'm like, they just see the world in a different light because they look at it from up here. And like you kind of mentioned as well, you know, you love the flow of it and seeing all these different things. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing everything and then trying to put it all together. Whereas I'm thinking of the point of view of the one server and I need to take this one coffee to this one person. So explain to me more that what. What do you see then when you look from above at the food industry? And let's bring it to Vietnam then. So we'll we'll look at Vietnam.
1: Yeah. So when I look at the food industry and what I look usually at, like like, like a country like Vietnam that's really modernizing and going through a lot of change, especially when it undergoes a Black Swan event like the pandemic, um, just looking at how people are eating, you can tell a lot about how they're feeling and. What that, what that might mean for the industry. So, for example, um, during the pandemic, thirty nine percent of Vietnamese people actually stopped eating raw meat. So you, you, you and it's one of the countries that actually, um, uh, um, one of the countries that has the largest population of people that stopped eating raw meat. Right. Like obviously, the pandemic is a zoonotic disease, um, but why did why Vietnam so high, why is it so high? And then you realize that there's a huge food safety issue, right? And then you realize that deeper than the food safety issue um, is that there's a, there's a huge distrust in their own goods um, by the Vietnamese people, which if you look at the research and studies, a lot of it is actually drawn to the fact that, you know, Vietnam is a country that has been Undergone one war after one war after another after another, right? So there's, they, 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 they don't really trust a lot of their own products, um, especially raw food that's, create, that's developed here in Vietnam itself um, because there's so little faith in the government and guidelines as well. And um, the third thing is you will see that a lot of Vietnamese people last year, because of the swine flu, and the lack of education within the food industry itself, they actually stopped eating pork as well. And coupled with the pandemic, they just completely avoided meat altogether. So I think... I
0: didn't know that at all. I'd never heard that before. I did not wow. know that.
1: So wow. last year, 80,000 pigs were caught in, in, in Vietnam because of swine flu. And you can see again when, you know, the recent um, story about how the old couple had COVID and 12 of those dogs got killed... You can see there is a huge like this this relationship with animals. Um, it, it it it's 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 not just oh yeah they hate animals. It's you can really root anchor it back into 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 a lot of these things, and it's 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 because it's tied to this this this. They don't trust people easily, and why do they not trust people easily? It's because you know, it's a country that's just been screwed over by screwed over by screwed over, right? Yeah. Yeah, so when people, you know, like, yeah. So I, I, I really think that by how people eat, you can really see how things are
0: changing or how culture is, right? Um, yeah. So how has the, this is a really the one of the biggest questions I wanted to ask you. How has the food and beverage industry dealt with this, lockdown we were basically their businesses were mandated to be closed completely for how long two months was it when mm-hmm. it was just door deliveries yeah one, so
1: it's about two, two two
0: two months yeah yeah so it would be similar maybe there's a few industries that would be similar like cinemas or gyms and and yeah and, art and things like this yeah so it's one of the few industries that basically had to just shut their doors yeah yeah how do they survive? How are they still open today? Like, I just don't understand. Like, I can't, I, yeah. I take my hat off to these owners and yeah, these yeah, yeah. staff that are, that are doing this. How does that happen?
1: Honestly, um, I think that the ones that have, you need to have enough capital flow um, to survive. And a lot of businesses, I think people don't see actually have gone out of business, right? Um, because even though restaurants are open for delivery now, you, you don't make money, right? And that's why you still see that restaurants are closed because they're like, why would I go through so much trouble um, to be open and without the, the, the possibility of really, really um, being, op- like being able to make money? So I think that the restaurants, that's why I believe that restaurants that want to be open now are doing it for the people. They're really just opening because, you know, um, people are calling them. I want some food. They're doing a couple of deliveries right now. Um, and they want their staff to come back for motivation. If you ask any restaurant owner right now that's just open for delivery or takeaway, mm. having to probably pay for all the staff to be fully vaccinated and pay for all the staff to be you know, have COVID testing every two or three days, they're not making money. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to not be forgotten.
0: Yeah, it's such yeah. a certain point. Yeah. And you know, yeah. we I've interviewed on this show a few seasons ago Calvin Boye. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah.
0: Who's never nephew? Like it's crazy. His his channel uh fucking delicious. Yeah, his,
1: you know, yeah, like, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. He's crazy. I mean, I met Calvin first, like when we first came here just over five years ago when he had a small mm-hmm. um Mexican place on Boy VN and you're walking down the street, and then some crazy guy just starts yelling at you, and you're like, Why is this guy yelling at us? And then it's Calvin inviting. Yeah,
1: you know, yeah, and yeah. You
0: know, for shorts of tequila. So yeah. when I interviewed him, you know, you can hear they just want to feed people. Like that was basically yeah. what he said. He's like, yeah. and it's such a it's such a weird industry in so many ways. Yeah. And, most people yeah. are not getting into restaurants to make money. You know, they're doing it because of mm-hmm. the love, which is something. I mean, I love eating food, but I don't have that same passion as you for the yeah, industry. No, for sure. Same passion. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say to you earlier: is it almost like a cult?
1: Um, the restaurant industry. Yeah, I think that there, there there's always a cult in every like rest in every country within like chefs and stuff like that, right? You have to also understand being in hospitality, you know, our days of uh, work are very, you know, you, everybody works 9 to 5 Monday to Friday. That's probably our day of rest. Like Monday, we're off. Tuesdays, maybe we're off, right? Like weekends is our, like, is our work day. So because, because we can't really socialize with people, normal people, <laughs> normal reward the hospitality industry is just very united because they are the ones that finish at 2 3 a.m and then they
0: go out yeah i I, like i said i've worked in the industry right i'm excited after we've uh, finished to ask one of the people that are here watching this live podcast who has worked in the industry and who hasn't and what are their experiences because it's such a unique place where and so I've had my jobs where I've worked Monday to Friday, nine to five. You get a break, (laughs) every two hours, you go for a cup of tea, you get paid holidays, you get vacations, but then you have these people that worked in the bar industry or the restaurant industry where you don't get a break all day, you don't get paid vacations, you don't get anything, but they love the job, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. Honestly, like I... I think that if you are, you know, if you want to have, like, a career, like, a long-term career, and, and you got to love what you do, mm-hmm. because there's no other reason that you would want to work weekends, you want to work nights, you want to work on birthdays, you want to work on New Year's Eve or Christmas, um, besides the fact that because, you know, making somebody else's day is more important than, you know, your own time, right? Or, you know, being in the kitchen and being able to create and have somebody really enjoy it. Um, yeah, it's a long hours. Sometimes you get shoved at by customers, but it's nothing, like you really need to be a service-driven person. Like if you talk to chefs, it's like sometimes why do they deliver food or, you know, like risk getting fined just to deliver food? You're not making money. It's really because, you know, people during lockdown and quarantine and they're like, this fresh bread means so much to me.
0: Yeah, when you put it like that, it really makes you wonder how the industry exists. When you say about, and it's true, you know, people, you miss New Year's, you miss birthdays, you miss yeah. Christmas, it's Mother's Day, you have to work late. Like as yeah. I said, I, I've done this lifestyle and it's, it's fun. Like there's definitely something about that that attracts you to it. Yeah. You meet people, you, There's something about serving drinks and serving food. And de- I don't know what it is exactly. There is definitely something about mm-hmm. this lifestyle. That becomes attractive but yeah it's it's unbelievable that there are people in this world who are so dedicated to service or dedicated to that lifestyle so that everyone else can go and have a good time i
1: know i i i also think that it's it's fantastic but you know i read the other day um an article that was saying that you know besides the social environment the delicious food you know restaurants and not just restaurants cafes street food places that people gather they are just really the backbone of communities right like just now i was just out and i got a drink and i i wanted to hang out with friends and just look at life and we were sat at just a flight of stairs and i realized that people need to hang out in certain places because that's where they they they, 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 they built community that's where communities are built these are hubs for community backbones of community
0: absolutely I mean, even, um, I'm worried that you, we might have, you've frozen now. Are you there? Oh, well, I think we lost you for a second. Yeah. You're back? All right. Yeah, I mean, people just, want, it's something that people meet around and gather, right? Like, I mean, yeah. I don't think I've ever really met my friends for a cup of tea. I'll meet my friends for a beer or I meet my friends for food. And even today, because obviously restaurants are still closed and, and coffee places are still closed, we went out for a walk I and mean, we got a takeaway coffee to walk with. And yeah. there's this a group of four or five kind of young Vietnamese people all hanging out on their motorbikes with a takeaway coffee, you know. And it's like you said, they're, okay, we can't sit in a coffee place and they weren't breaking any rules. You know, but they, mm-hmm. So they're just hanging out together, sharing a coffee, you know. So you know, it's a, it's a, it's a strange, I think, a strange but a, a kind of wonderful industry. So, what do you see next then for Vietnam? Because obviously, here the the thing about Vietnam, which is so not unique, because there's probably other countries that are similar, but makes it quite different. The fact that I can go out and get a bowl of pho for twenty thousand dong, or I can probably go and buy a steak for two hundred dollars. Like the disparity in how much you can spend here. Is bigger than probably most places in the world. Like most places, there's obviously a disparity in prices, but here yeah. it's huge. And like you say, you could the yeah. mom and pop places and the, the local food, which is delicious. But yeah. now we're having more and more and more uh, high-end restaurants, especially obviously more in Saigon. I I often say Vietnam, but what I actually mean is Saigon, because Saigon <laughs> is, is uh um, yeah. Is, is different to Vietnam, right? So let's see Saigon. So what do you see for the future of the restaurant industry in Saigon coming out of this lockdown?
1: So coming out of this lockdown, um, you know, I think the question you're asking is very much twofold. Like, firstly, structurally, like, it will look different. Like, you know, chairs and tables are going to look very far apart. People are going to be masked. So structurally, I think, like, it will look very different. But Vietnam is like many of the Southeast Asian countries that were really trying to modernize and industrialize, right? Um, It's it's going to really see a big shift in the way people dine as well with a growing middle class. And that's why you can now see a lot more like premium or like upscale or like elevated restaurants that are opening. And I think that this is very, very, very important um, for two reasons, right? So you will see, and I, I wrote a very lengthy article about this. Um, so Vietnamese cuisine has, like Southeast Asian cuisine in general, has always been regarded as street food and quite low class. Right? Um, whenever you think of high class cooking, you look at you look to the West. And if anybody asks you to pay for a pho, anything more than, let's say, $70,000, you are like, that's crazy. Right? <laughs> there's no <laughs> way. <laughs> there's no way. But if you look to Japan and Korea, people are willing to pay hundreds of dollars just for a bowl of udon because there's so much respect to, to the art of Japanese cuisine and the technique. But Vietnamese cuisine is equally the same. If you look at like a bowl of bubbao they, they they actually boil that broth for like days. The technique of making all this food is it, it, it's it's you know it's so it's so um, it's so difficult, and I think it definitely just hasn't got the kind of light that it it, it needs. But anyway, um, this new wave of, re- of 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 chefs and restaurants, what they're really trying to do is to shine light on the, the food industry in Vietnam to show people around the world and say, you know what, We're, we can't, we don't just do street food. We do have real talent here, right? Um, and a lot of them, they are, you look at the younger chefs, they're really trying to say, you know what, Vietnamese cuisine is really cool. It is really good. We've got this like myriad of brilliant ingredients. We've these cooking techniques, like which are so proper, you know, please look at it and stop thinking that this is just street food. So it's really important for us to be open-minded, to be like, hey, you know what? Um. Let Let's 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 learn more. Let's Let's eat Vietnamese food and give it the kind of respect that it it deserves. Because you know what it it, is. You know, I've 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 read and I've studied and I've talked to chefs about Vietnamese cuisine. And you talk about it's such an intricate cuisine because it has so many influences from, um, you know, China, from France and stuff like that. Right. So, if you learn about it, actually. Um, it's very interesting, and when you look at a balance of flavors, when you look at fermentation, it's 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 um quite similar to let's say the Japanese cooking techniques. But why is it people like refuse to to regard it in the same level? So the new wave of these Japanese um, Vietnamese restaurants and Vietnamese chefs are trying to tell this story, trying to really make Vietnamese cuisine known around the world for something just beyond pho, beyond like banh mi. Um, which, you know, was largely um, driven by the Vietnamese diaspora overseas in the 80s, right? Or the boat people that went abroad. They opened up all these pho and banh mi restaurants um, just because they needed to do something. And those were the easiest ingredients probably to procure or probably the ones that would have been most widely accepted in whatever country they resided in. Um, So, yeah, so the 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 FMB industry here is really trying to change that. And um, I do see, you know, this year, um, for the first time in the last like eight years, um, Vietnam made the Asia's top 50. So there's a mm-hmm. lot more, there's a lot more attention that's being placed on, on the chefs here. Also, because we see a lot of um, chefs actually returning from overseas. You know, you have Peter Kwong Franklin, Anand, he came back. We have a lot of these chefs that are trying to come back, you know, make their lives themselves in the 2000s. Um, the, Je- the Vietnamese government gave them, you know, gave these Vietcues this renewed visa that say, hey, you know what, come back, we'll give you citizenship. So a lot of them came back and so about 500,000 of them come back and they're doing all these really cool things. So, yeah, I think that um, in the next couple of years, we're going to see a lot more uh, media attention on this particular segment of the f industry, particularly on Vietnamese cuisine. Vietnamese cuisine, Vietnamese spirits, Vietnamese beverage industry—you know, um, yeah—and I'm very excited for it because it's largely driven by um, Vietnamese as well as foreigners who are here.
0: It's, it's really exciting, and I think it's just part yeah. of a larger trend that over the probably post-war Vietnam has been so heavily reliant mm-hmm. on Western influence, Western education, Western. Expats coming over bringing yeah, food, sure. engineering skills, bringing. And they're still relying on that for, for for many industries. Like, you know, I was talking to a friend who works in the, the wind industry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, renewable energy. And that's still very much reliant on having overseas people come over with the, with their expertise and knowledge. But one I think you're mm-hmm. describing is something that I talked about with uh, Tracy Nguyen Mang on uh, the previous uh, two episodes ago we're talking about this explosion of the Vietnamese diaspora around the world. But I guess what even you're seeing as well is even within Vietnam, and I think, and again, it's hard to tell because I'm obviously very aware of this because of this podcast and because of the different people, different industries. But it does seem like there's almost like a a renaissance of Vietnamese people here and around the world. And I guess that's just, you know, fifty yeah. years post-war, um, yeah. and the the eighties. With I always forget the name. Obviously called again the, the doi doy moy
1: right? yeah
0: doi moy right. So what, we're now seeing the effects of that. You're seeing as as I didn't realize that number five hundred thousand people coming back oh, with that elderly. Yeah. Um, I think we're starting to see the result of that. Here in Vietnam and around the world, so you're seeing like, you know, Kelly Marie Tran on Star Wars. Yourself. Oh, definitely. And Diane is just in cast in uh, How I Met Your Father. Ali Wong is half yeah. Vietnamese. We've yeah. got uh, the Vietnamese diaspora around the world is just exploding and becoming known for more than just food. Yeah, but definitely. obviously food is the key. And you mentioned Peter Cullen Franklin. I was about to say that. I was just talking to him by message yesterday. So I've been talking to him for a while about coming on the podcast. So hopefully he'll yeah. be on for season eight. We're planning. He's busy right now, as you can imagine, with that, everything that's going on in the industry. But uh, if Peter watches this episode, we will hopefully have him on for uh, for season eight. So um, but it's, it's an exciting time for Vietnam, I think, very much. And um, the food definitely, and beverage definitely. is part of that. My one quick yeah. question, and then we're going to move on from to a different topic, is why do you think the Vietnam cuisine hasn't been so highly regarded? Is it just because it's seen as cheap? Both Saigon Children's Charity and Blue Dragon have emergency COVID appeals. The outbreak of the Delta variant is wreaking havoc on vulnerable communities across Vietnam. Families are struggling to survive. They need your help, especially impoverished children. You can sponsor a COVID backpack now with Saigon Children's Charity containing food staples, hygiene necessities, books and games to a child in COVID-affected areas in Vietnam so that they know they are taken care of physically and mentally. Or in the north, you can donate an emergency food pack through Blue Dragon. It contains fruit and vegetables, rice and staples to keep children and families going. Food will be bought locally and will include a mix of fresh food and longer-lasting items. For families who are hard to reach, your donation will provide a cash grant to buy food at the local market. The links to donate are in the description and if you're in a position to, please donate whatever you can. Thanks. Why do you think the Vietnam cuisine hasn't been so highly regarded? Is it just because it's seen as cheap?
1: Mm, honestly, I think that it's not just Vietnamese cuisine. Like, I'm Singaporean. Singaporean cuisine you will know, always be tied to chicken rice and street food. And, and, and that's fair because this is the bedrock of you know, our culture, right? And, but, but what it really does is it really... It makes what the new Vietnamese chefs, what they're trying to do, um, it waters down what they're trying to do because people will always compare it back to street food. Like they'll be, mm, this is not really real Vietnamese cuisine. So it's very hard for them to, mm-hmm. to, to be able to, to innovate within Vietnamese cuisine or, or to serve uh, Vietnamese cuisine because it will always be compared to street food. And it's and 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 the, the thing that you don't want is Vietnamese chefs uh, opening restaurants to make French cuisine, because you know what I'm trying to say. Like, we you know, I'm longevity and these kind of things.
0: I think I'm guilty of what you're talking about. As we're talking about <laughs> this food, I'm like, yeah, but it's not going to be as good as the bar color that I can get for their Exactly. on, on exactly. this corner. Exactly. Like, I'm not really like yeah. into going out and having like a high end. Yeah meal like exactly. i'm just not at that place so i guess i'm you're describing me like because i'm, like, no, a I'm lot not, like, not so yeah. Yeah. yeah so it's a big barrier to get by especially if you're used to these exactly, levels
1: exactly. To. so a lot of a lot of you know um it it, it makes it very difficult for a lot of these chefs that come out of their countries, let's say Vietnamese chefs or Singaporean chefs, even Indonesian chefs, they want to come out. Obviously, they want to do a cuisine that's close to their heart. And then it makes it very difficult because the market doesn't understand what they're trying to do. Or, you know, they will always be compared to Vietnamese street food. And the reason that I believe that Vietnamese street food is always pegged to be a very low or, you know, like cheap food, um, it's really like what I mentioned, right? Like our... Our It's because nobody is aware that Vietnamese cuisine can be a certain way. Nobody is aware of Vietnamese, you know, like finer dining food. Like if you look at China and Japan and Korea, they have had imperial cuisine because they have had this period of imperialism. Right. But in Vietnam, never. They've always just been colonized. After col- like they, They've always just been colonized. So they've never had their own Vietnamese, like, you know, fine cuisine. So nobody knows what that is. And that's why this new generation of chefs, you're really trying to come up with what that means. Like, if you go to China, you can eat Chinese street food. But we also know what Chinese, like, good Chinese food is. Like, there's shark's fin, there's abalone, there's, you know, really good stuff. And people are like, yeah, okay, I can pay for this. I know that there's good Chinese restaurants that's picking that, right? So we understand this. Um, but in Vietnam just don't have that so um, yeah it, it just firstly never existed so everything that the world even the Vietnamese know of Vietnamese cuisine is street food and then secondly it's because the diaspora went around and brought this everywhere <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's why everyone just comes here and they all want to have a bun mi because it's all they've ever tried so that's why my job my job here is to really focus and
0: write about these things. Um, yeah. Well, this brings me on to my next question. And so yeah. being in the Middle East, being from Singapore, why are you in Vietnam? How did you end up here?
1: Mm-hmm. So I I came here to open up a fitness studio, my indoor cycling studio. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it's really funny. So um,
0: it It was was, like a
1: big thing. That wasn't
0: (laughs) a joke. This is a real story.
1: Yeah, (laughs) this is a real story. This is actually a real story. And I think that everybody, this is the usual reaction that also everybody gives to me. Uh, everybody just laughed, right? Uh, but yeah. <laughs> but I did come here to open up an indoor cycling studio. And the reason why is um, so, besides being a food, you know, like food marketer and writer, um, I, I, I was very, you know, I'm also an indoor cycling instructor. I was anyway, and I was really into indoor cycling. It was really my form of, you know, exercise and mental release, okay? And last year, I was so burnt out from my job. So absolutely burnt out. So tired and I uh, was, you know, I worked for an airline and it was just so trying, right? And I, during the pandemic, I can only tell you how like painful it was. I think uh, when you see, you know, like every three months, just like hordes of your colleagues just getting let go and getting let go and getting let go. It was, it was a very like anxiety inducing period for me at least. And I said that I didn't want to be in the industry doing what I was doing anymore. Cause I was so tired of uh, at the end of it. And so I said, I wanted to do something that made me feel good or make people feel good.
0: Uh, yeah. So that's what I wanted to do when I came to Vietnam. So we're gonna pick up on one thing, an indoor cycling instructor. Yeah what do you do? Stay on the bike, go. Like what? This seems like I'm a walking instructor. What do you do? Just put one foot in front of the other. How do you instruct someone to cycle?
1: Um, it's not okay, so it's a concept. I'm being
0: very I'm being very true decisions
1: I know you are. Uh the concept the concept of the indoor cycling was called soulful cycling. It was really like a soulful cycling concept. So if you're familiar with like concepts from the US, it's uh, soul cycle, which has really like taken off uh, in the US, right? And in many parts of the country. And it's being immersed in the dark room where you're just surrounded by candlelights and instead of asking somebody to like go, 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 um, you motivate them. And you channel like inner and intrinsic motivation to get people to and show up for themselves and move on the bike. Yeah, so that was kind of what I was doing.
0: Like <laughs> yeah, no, that's I awesome. was just
1: cheerleading it, people.
0: <laughs> it just uh, it, it makes me laugh even more because um, I don't know if anyone who's listening to this, probably someone will have heard of uh, Devin Gray, who's uh, one of my <laughs> good friends and a, a very, very funny comedian. And my favorite ever joke of his is when he talks about going to a spinning class oh my goodness, <laughs> can he just stop cycling? And the instructor comes up to him and she says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm going downhill. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is uh, it's always one of my favorite jokes. But so um, we've, we've obviously kind of talked about this before the podcast yeah. and so it's something that, that you're comfortable with talking about. Of
1: course, of course.
0: Um, and, and it's something that, so I obviously follow you on, on Facebook and your social media. It's really um, refreshing that you you post a lot about mental health, and I know that you I, before I'd ever even I think spoke to you, I, I'd seen on your blog or whatnot that as you mentioned, one of the reasons why you left your job in the airline, one of the reasons you came to Vietnam was because of being um, you know stressed out, anxiety as you as you mentioned, and it's still something that you post about you know often daily, frequently about managing your mental health, having mental health issues, which um, is so refreshing. And it's it's a, something that's more common, you know, these days. <laughs> and I said, like an old man, often, I often say things that make me sound like an old man. I say the word television a lot, which my wife calls me out on. She said, do you know how old you sound? It's a TV, not a television. That's how, old, <laughs> that's how old I am. <laughs> I don't watch the TV. I watch the television. But um, but it's, it's obviously something that's becoming more prominent these days, which I think is amazing because it's something that was like a, well, just nobody ever spoke about mental health. Yeah. Uh, and it's refreshing when I look on your story and you're, you're very candidly honest about it, more so than maybe other people, and not in a bad way, in a, in a really great way. So tell us more about why why do, have you made that decision to be so refreshingly candid about mental health and, and how you deal with that?
1: Mm, yeah. So I have, uh, I've had anxiety since I was, I don't know, I think nine. Whoa, whoa, whoa. almost revealed my age there.
0: <laughs> 22, you 22. <laughs> no, no,
1: no, no. no. Uh, I've had anxiety for almost a decade um so you know i remember when i had my first panic attack um how painful it was and i'm not sure if anybody here has ever had like a panic attack before or an anxiety attack before it was you know one of the most uh, scary things that i think i've ever gone through before um and thankfully thankfully um my mom during that time, she she had it. So my my mom has anxiety, and you know she's had um, a history of mental health. Um, you know, uh, in kind of a similar way like me. And I I was able to get the support she like you know I needed you know to go and see a counselor and to have somebody really just tell me like oh don't worry like like not don't worry but like oh this is normal you're fine you're safe and you know just helping me to understand that. And what I was going through was not this crazy, like, huge thing. Because, you know, when I had it at the time, I didn't tell anybody. And I thought that I was going crazy and I was going to end up in, you know, the mental health, like, jail behind some room. And I was not going to be able to see anybody because that's what you think, right? That's what you think people who are cre- like have mental health issues that like you're on the street, you're talking to random people, you know, on the train, and you're that crazy person like on the train. Um, and, and that was what I thought was happening to me. So
0: I think that's the stigma right already. Yeah, exactly.
1: So, you know, like I remember suffering with that and thinking that, that you know, like the fear of that happening um, and not knowing what was going on was so much bigger than what I was going through. So that's why to me, you know, so important to change this idea of, you know, what somebody with anxiety or a mental health issue might look like. Like, I, I, I still get on with my day, you know, like I still am able to achieve great things. I'm still able to do great things. I'm still able to be in a loving relationship. So I, I think that I want to talk about these things because... Because I just want to normalize it because I think when you normalize it, it it, it makes people want to talk about it more. You'll feel more comfortable to talk about it more. And I think when you can talk about it, you realize, hey, you know what? Actually, it's not such a big, it's not that it's not a big deal, but it's like, oh, I can still live a really normal life. Yeah, okay. That's that's okay. You, you know what I'm trying to say? I think like...
0: You I know, think, absolutely. You know I-, I think with uh, any, anything, even... Even like a you know, just mental health, like physical yep. health, you have like a pain in your arm and you're like, oh my God, my arm's falling off. What's going to happen to me? Exactly. And then you go to the doctor and he's like, oh no, it's just like this. I, I remember I, when I, I get migraines every six months or something and yeah. when I first started getting migraines. I thought I was going blind. I thought my, I had a brain cancer. Exactly. Like, exactly. And then you go to the doctor and you, you explain your symptoms and he's like, oh yeah, it's a migraine. And you're like, oh. Oh, I okay. feel yeah. so much better now. This is like... Yeah,
1: exactly. It's like, everybody gets migraines. It's fine. It'll be gone tomorrow. It's okay. Nothing's really wrong with you. You're fine. And, yeah. then, you know, like, that's really what I think, you know, people just need to know. Like, you know, anxiety, one in four people, so common. Like, it's fine. You don't have to beat yourself up over it. You don't have to... You know, feel like a complete failure or loser just because you had something like that. I so just want to. And well, yeah. to go kind of
0: full circle back to the beginning as well. So, you know, you're obviously uh only twenty two years old, as we've established. I'm only
1: twenty one years <laughs>
0: correct? Oh, For oh, twenty one now? Oh, no, I'm kidding. Twenty two. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, but obviously, you know, uh, successful in your field, doing amazing things. You. Um, you've you've come onto the saigon scene and (laughs) like you you've i said i i think i said in the description for the show you've made a splash in the saigon scene like a hurricane a hurricane in the saigon scene Uh, you 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 know came in out of nowhere and then your blog has has blown up and uh yeah you i obviously have I, i followed what you were doing before we'd ever we'd ever we'd ever talked to each other um so it's it's refreshing as well from the point of view that from the outset you see this person who's achieving a lot then we became Facebook friends and then I see your your stories yeah, and your stories is like one after the other or not one after the other but like very often and frequently talking about your mental health issues like I've had this today, I've had that today blah, 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 blah. and it's like oh like this is a person who is high functioning high achieving but they're a normal person who has their daily troubles, like like many people, like at least one in four, like you mentioned. So it's they, a very brave thing that you've done, and I think it's and then I, I I applaud that, and it's um, oh, it's you. amazing yeah. to see. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I I actually like I think a lot, like not a lot, but so when when I started talking about my mental health issue, not issues. I also don't really like a lot of the words that are typically associated with mental health because I don't think it's an illness. I don't think it's an issue. I think it's really just, you know, like a personality or, you know, something that you just have, like a character trait, right? Um, When I first started vocalizing, and one thing that I'm very vocal about is also um, taking medication for it. Um, I medicate it. Uh, I do take it when I have an anxiety attack. I'm not on daily medication, but I... I want to advocate that it's completely fine that you take it if it's re- because I know how painful it can be, and I think that there's no shame in in, in taking medication if if it hurts or if it helps you um, so that's just one thing that I really like like I'm very open about um, because I just know like I don't understand why people are so averse to to, to medication it's almost like if you take it, that means you're definitely sick. And, and, and there's so many ways that we, there's so many things that we really need to to, to almost like disprove, right? Like, why does it mean that if you're taking medication, um, you're sick? It's almost like taking a Panadol if you've got pain. So why can't we, like, why does it mean that if you take a little Xanax for, for anxiety attack, because it's really that painful that people have to judge you for it?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I oh, have I- you seen the have you seen the Louis Theroux documentary? It's probably quite old now, maybe 10, maybe even 15 years old. I wasn't born then. <laughs> oh, I know exactly you were a child.
1: I wasn't born then.
0: You know who Louis Theroux is? He's a, a British do, documentary do, right. yeah, maker. Do, right. Yeah. And he does one about medication in, in, in the United States. And they obviously probably over-medicate in the United States, but I remember there was one. Um, I think he was a teenager or preteen who had massive, um, more than just mental health issues. Or I, I know that's not, maybe not the best way to say it, as we just discussed issues, but massive um, behavioral problems and whatnot. And and there's an argument that you know you shouldn't be medicating kids. And I know that's a bit—it's not the same thing. But but you could see in this documentary that the medication worked. Like he was able to be a more yeah. functioning human yeah. being yeah. Yeah, when he yeah. took the medication because the documentary showed you what he was like yeah. off of it and showed you what he was like on it and it's and it's really difficult because you're like oh well yeah. we shouldn't be medicating kids and again I know we're not talking about medicating kids it's a bit of a sidetrack but still for people who are like oh well you shouldn't take medication but it's like but it helps you know like a panadol
1: definitely and I think that You know, when it comes to mental health, like, um, you know, like certain disorders, for me, I was like, you know, very, very admittedly, I was quite heavily medicated a while ago, like a long while ago. And what it makes you, what it does to you is bring you down to a, a level where you're able to be logical and not just lost in your own thoughts. And and when you are able to function day to day and see things logically and go into situations that are usually anxiety inducing and realize like, hey, you know what? Actually, this isn't so scary. Like for me, I, 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 I had really bad flight. So I still can't. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I have very bad flight anxiety. And for the very longest time, I couldn't fly until I was like, you know what? I... I really love to fly and I love to travel. Right. So I said, I couldn't do this anymore. And I, I, I took one year off to travel. And yeah, I think you might have seen I took like 40 flights in one year uh, just really because I needed to desensitize. And my psychiatrist told me, you know what, just take the Xanax in moderate amounts because you need to calm down and see that the situation that you're in is not as scary as your brain makes you think you are. So I think that sometimes medication can, you know, can actually be quite helpful, especially for mental health, because sometimes whatever's in your thoughts, in your brain, is a lot scarier than what the reality is. And you just need the medication to help you see with
0: clearer eyes. Well, the other thing that I remember from that, that same documentary was, yeah, when you saw it, it was a different documentary by Louis Theroux and he was uh, looking into alcoholism and, but not just like, you know, people who drink a lot throughout the life, like people who can go from being completely sober to absolutely yeah. blind drunk yeah. and completely a different person. And there was this one guy, I think he was German he was European, but yeah. he was living in the UK and um He would. He was kind of followed this pattern of getting blind drunk, either get injuring himself or injuring others or whatnot. And they followed his story throughout the documentary. And near near the end, they went back and interviewed him again. And he was completely sober because he had gone to a psychiatrist and he'd been medicated. And he realized that he'd been self medicating through alcohol. So he had a mental health challenge. And had, he didn't know he was doing it, but he was just drinking so much alcohol yeah. and v- bottles. Yeah. And as soon as he got put on, I can't remember the medication, but as soon as he got put on the medication, stopped drinking immediately because that was what he was self medicating, which. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. As I take a sip of beer, we're probably all doing. Yeah. Self <laughs> so medication. So, final question before we move on to the final questions. Um, on the same topic. So how have you dealt with um, your mental health during this lockdown? Because Mm -hmm. so I'll be honest, for me, I I don't really have mental health issues. Like I have challenges every now and again, but I I don't have any anxiety and things like this. Mm -hmm. Um, But this lockdown has probably been one of the most difficult mental health challenges of my life mm. and I've not had a difficult life so I'm not I, I don't yeah. have much to, yeah. I don't have much to compare it to and I'm not trying to make it so dramatic but being locked up all day every day with yeah. my life was the most difficult thing <laughs> 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 I'm giving me a dirty look no that that was the that was the easiest thing about it but being being locked up all day every day was obviously yeah. difficult in some days I just felt like shit some days I felt horrible I felt terrible yeah just that crap day. And um, but, it, but I was already starting from a position of not having very many yeah. mental health challenges. So yeah. how did you deal then with the lockdown already having that? Because that that seems like that would be quite difficult.
1: Yeah, the lockdown at the beginning, um, my road was I was living in one of these cold off areas where like oh, that's hey, that's
0: where you go, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: So I was like in one of these, you know, 50 meter like you know lockdowns where I couldn't get my own food, couldn't get like my couldn't get anything, right?
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and and that was quite suffocating. I remember actually going into anxiety because, you know, one of the things it's, it's like, what am I, one of the things of like anxiety is like sometimes you feel the symptoms um, and you scare it, like maybe it's a lot more serious than it is. Yeah. You know, like if you feel like your chest is getting tight, you're like, oh no, what if I'm dying? Like, what if something's happened? And I kind of get to the hospital in time. That's like none of the hospitals are open. None of the pharmacies are open. So like that was like a constant thought that was in my head. which made like the lockdown very stressful um i think some of the tips that was um and i mean i'm very very lucky as well you know this is my 10th year going into anxiety i've gotten to know myself a lot better what my triggers are and also like what my self-soothing is um i'm also very open to talking about it so sometimes like my when my anxiety is really bad my chest gets really tight and i feel like cannot breathe so usually what then I need to do is pick up the phone and talk to somebody, say like, hey, you know, like I'm having an anxiety. I, I need to talk to somebody just to talk to somebody. Um, and because I'm quite comfortable to talk about how I feel um, and I have support systems around me that understand that like that this is just what I need to do, um, That that was one of the things. And that's why I really want to normalize it because I really want to just... I want people to be able to pick up the phone and talk about it because it's so helpful,
0: right? You know, realize, yeah, absolutely. Even as I mentioned, it was one of my toughest periods, yeah, in the, these last few months. And I, I come from a kind of like sales and marketing background from yeah. a few years ago, where everything had to be positive. Like your arm was falling off, and you're like, "How are you doing today?" And You're like, "Yeah, I'm great. It's, I'm, a, I'm I'm got like one arm. And I don't I don't need two. Everything's amazing," you know. So they yeah. have to be almost overly positive, which is yeah. good in a way. And I, I have a, and I think that has helped my mental strength massively, like absolutely massively. But for the first time during this lockdown, I allowed myself to be to be vulnerable. So yes. some, if someone would ask me like, "How are you doing?" I'd be like, "Yeah, no, I'm not doing good today." Or I'd message yeah. like my family, if I'm quite close with, that I'd be like, "I'm having a shit day today." which yeah. I'd never done before. I'd never, ever done that before. Yeah. And th- and I would message people as well. I'd be like, how are you doing? Are you okay? Yeah, yeah of course. And, and try and have those conversations. So yeah. even if I was doing okay, I would try and reach out to other people and be like, how yeah. are you? Because it was fucking tough. And it was one of the things that I always tried to keep perspective was it wasn't that tough. I'm in this like nice apartment with my wife and I'm hanging out and I've got food and I've got water and I've got electricity and you know, there's people down the road that don't have anything. So always trying to maintain that perspective. But at the same time, you're like, man, this is tough. (laughs) Mm. I I didn't have a point. I didn't really have a point or a question. (laughs)
1: No, 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 no. But like, I I completely understand. And I think that one of the things that, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of people are like, it's tough. It's tough for everybody, whether you are a rich Millionaire to to somebody on the road, but a lot of people are they don't allow themselves. They don't think their feelings are valid because you're not on the street starving. And I'm thinking like that's that's not fair. Mm. Like of course yeah. you can't do that. Like you no, know, you've it's hard. It's very very hard.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so I I talk quite often with them. One of the he's the executive director of a a big charity here in Saigon. And he said exactly what you said. His staff were, were having a really difficult time, but they kept saying like, because they were helping these people that were the most vulnerable, mm-hmm. that, were, like, didn't, that didn't have rice, didn't have food, didn't have anything. And they wouldn't allow themselves to, to feel what they were feeling. Yeah. Because they were like, well, but we don't have, we don't have it as bad as them. And so him as the, 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 the executive director of the organization, he was having to say to them what we just said, like, you need to allow yourself to feel what you're feeling because it's still tough for you, so even though these people are having a horrible difficult time, that doesn't negate the fact that you are also having a horrible difficult time as well
1: definitely definitely. I think that a lot of people have negated their feelings mm. um and but at the same time felt that have 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 you know like they bear the, the burden of a lot of things around them right now because they don't feel that they, sh- they should be allowed to feel sad or, or upset. But at the same time, they're taking on the burden of so many people out there. Like, you know, you're doing charity, your employees are maybe struggling. There's a lot of things going on. But one of the things if you ask, like, go back to your question, how I took care of myself is, you know, every single day, like, I you know, I meditate and I really check in with myself, like, like how am I feeling today? Am I okay? Am I okay and am I mentally healthy to be able to go out and ask somebody if they're okay and help somebody? Because if you're not, then you can't really take care of other people as well.
0: Yeah, at one point I, I considered Doing like a kind of Facebook post, and obviously with seven million bikes, it's got kind of a certain reach more than my own personal page. And I thought about putting out a post and kind of being like, you know, if you need help, get in touch with me, and you know, I, I'm here to talk. And and my wife, who is infinitely smarter than me, she said to me, she's like, "Are you, if you do that, are you ready to take that on?" Because, and I was like, "Yeah, probably not." Yeah, so I didn't do it. I was like, yeah, I'm probably not ready to to, to put myself out there like that, you know?
1: Yeah. So and, and that's fair. When I was sharing about my mental health, like, you can't imagine how many people actually messaged me, telling me that they felt the same. Or they good. had depression, or they had anxiety, and they had gone through so much. And you know, I, you know, just, and, and somebody that I didn't know at all messaged me and said, you know, Javel, I had a close friend of mine rushed to the hospital because of panic attacks. Like, can you tell me how to make it better and stuff like that? And I can, you know, I'm so blessed that I went through my first panic attack 10 years ago that, that I've come to a point where I'm very okay with my anxiety, but if I had to go through a panic attack now alone and an expat, it must be so difficult. Like, I, I don't understand why we're not talking about it more. Um, last year in Malaysia, I actually, I volunteered with a, uh, a mental health NGO and it was crazy. Like, it was really crazy.
0: It well, was- I think this is the benefit of your stories that you post. That if people see it, like we kind of talked about, then they're like, oh, it's not just me. This other person feels yeah, the same. So it's, it's normalized. And to go back what we kind of said before as well, that stigma, yeah. I think, was, it was a, like you said, oh, I don't want to be the crazy person talking to myself on the street through media yeah, yeah, yeah. seeing people like that but that's probably what people think like i don't want to be that crazy person like yeah. if i have a, if i have mental health problems then that means i'm going to be on the street talking to myself feeding the pigeons you know like yeah, yeah 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 of course for the people that that messaged you again it's probably good to be like oh this like it's it can almost be so trivial because you're just kind of like yeah it's normal but that reaction can almost be the best because then they're just like, oh, all right, okay, yeah, okay, I can chill out. I don't need to stress so much. Now, I said at the very beginning of this podcast that I like, I I love these episodes because they end up running into two hours. Yeah. Um, and I, I I either have to make them into two parts or, um, or I have to uh, edit the shit out of them. And I had a question before from Zion, who I don't even know if he's still here because we've talked for so long. But he said, why don't you release the two parts back to back? Cause if I do an episode in two parts, I'll still release them a week apart. And that's just to give people the chance to listen to the first part and then cause it, you know, takes a few days for people to to listen to it and then listen to the second part. But uh, this is uh this is going on it's been so good and uh, so enjoyable, and I won't. Oh, wait, yeah. it won't yeah. uh, only when we get to this point will I be like, "Okay, we need to stop talking." Mm. For people like Zion and others who are regular listeners of the podcast, you'll have heard me say this before. The sign of a good episode and a good interview, and they're all good. They're all good, but the mm. sign of a really good one is when uh, myself and, and the guest could just keep talking. So, if I don't stop us talking now, we could probably talk for three or four hours, and um. I'm not Joe Rogan. I'm not going to start doing three-hour podcasts. So what we'll do, we'll move on to the final questions. But final questions. Sometimes, sometimes I move on to the final questions, and then that takes half an hour in itself. So we're going to do these quick, quite quick fire, okay? So okay. You, don't need, you don't need to give too many explanations. Sometimes I ask these questions, and it really just needs like a one-sentence answer and then the person will okay. go on this big tangent about like their grandmother's cooking it and whatnot so thank
1: you <laughs> i won't do that i won't do
0: that <laughs> i don't i don't care where your grandmother's cooking okay no no so, um this question was devised when we were in a strict lockdown but we're now in a we can't leave we we can leave saigon sorry but um if you could go anywhere on a bike in saigon right now where would you go
1: uh I want to be in nature, so Sapa or Ninbid.
0: Next. In Saigon, everyone <laughs> gets <a person> <laughs> For sure. in, Everyone, this is meant to be if you could just get out of your house, jump on a bike, and go somewhere local. I've had people say like the same as you, like, oh, I'd go to Nha Chang, I'd go here, I'd go there. Oh, like, no. Sorry, sorry, sorry jump sorry. on a bike, where would you go? I specifically said to you though, where sorry, would you go sorry. in Saigon? And you still said Sapa. Sorry, so that's very where, sorry, sorry. where would you go right it. now?
1: Um, where would I go right now in Saigon? I would go to a. I would love to go to like a rooftop bar somewhere. Hmm.
0: You're still not getting this. The rooftop bars aren't open. Where would you go? Oh, right, right
1: now, th- right? I
0: can leave you those right this second. Jump on a bike, either this is on the That's a very
1: uh, constricted question. I feel like very constricted
0: yeah. by this question. Yeah, that's the, uh, that's the question has been designed like that, and you're just smashing the design. Go, where would you go?
1: A bad question. I, I don't want to play that
0: question.
1: Uh, I would love to go to maybe Mia Saigon. It's where a real Mia Saigon.
0: Oh, Mia Saigon, I think we might have covered this question, so you probably don't need to give much of an answer, but what has been the most challenging thing about lockdown? Mm. I love lockdown. Uh,
1: I told you this, and being away from my family.
0: Okay, that's a good one. Yeah, we've been away from most for a long time. What's been the best thing about lockdown?
1: Oh, my neighbors and I got really close.
0: We have like yeah, yeah. Your neighbor was Tommy Pruchinski, right?
1: Yeah, we got really close. And uh, the rest of the building and I, we, uh, yeah, we got really close because we wanted to get vegetable delivery. And back at the time when we were under the military martial law, martial law lockdown, they used to do only like 8 kg minimum vegetable deliveries. So went around knocking on everybody's doors and then got <laughs> to the papers. It was great. And then now to- we, yeah, it was really cool
0: favorite part um, we we actually nearly moved into your building a few years ago we looked at an apartment there we we were very close I I know where you live because I because I know Tommy as well obviously um all right what in Vietnam has shocked you the most
1: what in Vietnam oof um
0: how much paper they use it's mental mental in it it's yeah. just insane is uh, oh, okay. it all go? that's my question is it like a warehouse somewhere with just stacks of paper like i uh, don't know
1: it's uh and 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 how they have to like you know when you chop on 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 <laughs> papers it's like you've got to spread all of it out like a fan and then chop on all the pages it's
0: crazy. <laughs> I know, it's so and then, conversely what pleasantly surprises you about vietnam
1: um vietnamese people are like uh very community driven very kind um very giving and they really take care like i during the lockdown i participated in a couple of like charity uh distributions around the neighborhood and you know um we 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 had a lot of the local district volunteers actually bring us to the, the foreigners and the expats and a lot of the others so it was quite sweet to see that they were really taking care of like um, the local Vietnamese, but also the foreigners. It was very nice. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, uh, the longer I'm here, the more I'm reminded that Vietnamese people are. They're depressed. The <laughs> so Val, thank you so, so much. It's thank been you. amazing to have yeah. this conversation. So we've, we've talked online for quite a while now. Yeah, and then, yeah. and I, then I, I listened to your podcast.
1: Don't
0: listen to my podcast. I listened to your podcast for the first time last week and it was very strange because it was actually the first time I'd heard your voice. It was kind of weird was like, oh, that's what she sounds like, cause we'd only ever communicated by um by, by messenger, and we've never yeah. met in, just in person yet. Or hopefully, we will soon. So, so before we before we move on to the question and answer session, and I just looked, and we still have people here, which is amazing. I can't believe that so many people have stayed this long listening to me. They're very polite. I, I don't get yeah, They have <laughs> they all got the cameras off. They're all people like a part the, the house. None of them are actually. They're not behind the screens. They're not. Yeah, there. no, no. I do hope they are though. But before we do. Go, <laughs> tell tell the people watching live tell the people that will be listening to this the people that will watch on youtube where can they find your blog where can they follow you where can they know more about you and what is next for joval chan in saigon
1: ah yes so you can follow you know uh, if you're interested to read more about food and beverage and the vietnam's growing talent within the industry and the potential uh you can follow me i'm jovalchan.com so j-o-v-e-l C-H-A-N.com. Um, and you can follow me on Instagram just type Travel thank god I have like a super unique name, I mean, you should be the first one that shows up <laughs> I talk a lot about, you know, um, the F&B industry and of course like uh, Niall said uh, I talk a lot about mental health um,
0: and Niall Neo Neil, no.
1: sorry, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> See, usually, we've never
0: really met. We've never really met in person It's Spain.
1: I usually get away with these things when I tell people it's not my first language. <laughs> I'm like, it's not my first language. I don't speak English. Um, okay, and Neil, sorry. <laughs> Wait, what is oh. your first language? It's English. It's it's English. from Singapore, it's, it's Singapore. English. It's English. It's like English? Singaporean English. It's very
0: different. <laughs> it's English.
1: Yeah. And what what's yeah. next for Vietnam's FMV industry? Is that? Yeah. Go. Um. A lot. A lot of. Vietnam. Like. Elevate it and reimagined Vietnamese cuisine, and also a lot of really cool things coming up from the spirits and alcohol
0: industry. Ooh, awesome. Yeah. I'm excited about that. I do have a confession to make. I thought your name was Jovo for so, long Because long it's like novel,
1: right? Because it's like novel.
0: Yeah. I, I, was I told
1: respond to it. to it.
0: Then it was Tommy that told me, and he was like, I was like, Jovo, and he's like, and then I think I thought he said Jovel. So I was calling you Jovel for the longest time. But then in my head, I was calling you Jovel. And then you told me it was Jovel. So I made the effort to pronounce your name correctly for tonight. But uh, it's good to see that you didn't do the same thing. But
1: <laughs> No, but I, I didn't know. We don't have a lot of Singaporeans caught Neil.
0: <laughs> no, I've gone back to um the gallery mode. Yeah. Uh, it's fucking awesome to see that uh, well Adri's still here because she has to be because she's like right there um, My boys Zion, over here. Annie, here. Connor and Pippa it's awesome to see you yeah, guys nice still here again. thank yeah. you so so much I hope awesome. you guys enjoyed that um,
1: yeah.
0: we're now open to a Q&A for Joval, so guys please yeah. ask some questions oh
1: nobody Everybody's like, oh, man, she's talked too much. We don't have questions. She's answered all the questions that we've had.
0: <laughs> yeah. Am I able to ask the first one, Javel? Or is of
1: course. Of course. But you know better than anybody in my life story.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here we go for round two. Sure. But the one thing that it came up towards there, obviously, from the career that you've gone towards, it wasn't easy. And we chatted about it in our podcast. Yep. Yeah. And like a young Asian female in yeah. the Middle East. Yeah. But you're also, as we said, very open about mental health. Yeah. How have you managed to today both stay both say assertive but also vulnerable? How do you navigate that balance? Thanks for listening to this episode of 7 Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast. We hope you enjoy hearing our guest stories. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the show and turn on notifications so you never miss a new episode. Thank you so much to our producer, Lewis Wright, for making sure the show sounds as good as possible for you. And also a big thanks to the 7 Million Bikes community members and everyone who supports us. Don't forget, if you haven't already, you can join the community today. The link is in the description and you'll get free event tickets, free 7 Million Bikes face mask and invites to special member events. Also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. and I'm still ashamed to say this tiktok most of all if you can please donate to saigon children's charity or blue dragon's children foundation's covid appeals remember we have six seasons of stories to share with you so check them out if you haven't already and we hope you can listen to future episodes too so you can laugh connect and discover cheers